welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. For those of you that know me well, today's episode will be one of the most on-brand Jimmy McLaughlin episodes we have ever had. It's with one of my favourite authors, Simon Cooper, who I first came across 10 years ago when he'd written the book Soconomics. It went on to become an international bestseller and a lot of it has stuck with me over the years and it's been great conversation ammunition for pubs and away days up and down the country as it explains the economics and business that lies behind the nation's favourite game. To make it an even more on-brand story, I recently came across Simon's new book, Barca, charting the rise and fall of Barcelona Football Club over the last 50 years in Tom Rowley's Ballam Bookstore. I wrote a review of it on my Substack and sent it to Simon afterwards to show him how much I'd enjoyed it and he said that he would be delighted to come on the podcast. So, with the World Cup starting in a couple of weeks, it seemed the perfect time for Simon to come on and explain the economics a bit more behind what happens with a World Cup and the way that football is becoming so much more professionalised at every single level, not just on the pitch. One of the stats in the FC Barcelona book was how the non-playing side of staff there has grown 5x over the last 20 years. It's one of the mega trends that is happening in our economy is how big sports teams are becoming and how they're becoming global brands in their own right. So it was fascinating to get Simon on to talk about all of these things. He writes regularly in the Financial Times as well. He is one of the most interesting people I've ever encountered and I really hope that you enjoy listening as much as I did recording. This show is made possible by the fantastic support of our various partners and I wanted to thank The Octopus Group. The Octopus Group is a collection of eight entrepreneurially minded businesses across financial services and energy, all founded on the one simple belief that people and the planet deserve better. They are intent on building a better tomorrow for future generations and are a certified B Corp, demonstrating they care as much about the impact of their investments as the returns they generate. I am proud that Octopus have backed this show since the second series and they are the reason why we are now able to put such a professional show together. To hear more about what they do, it is worth checking out previous episodes with the founders Chris Hewlett and Simon Rogerson or the CEO of their investments arm, Ruth Hancock. If you want to see how you could partner with us, go to our website at www.jobsofthefuture.co. And now on to today's episode. Simon, you have probably one of the most interesting jobs that we've ever had on Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. You write about the economics and business of football. How do you describe what you do when introduced to somebody at a drinks party? I'm a journalist and an author, and I write about all sorts of topics. I mean, the economics and business of football is just one of them. You know, I write books about power in the UK or about a British KGB agent and also soconomics, for example. So I I try to cover perhaps too many bases, but a lot of them. And you're republishing what is one of my favourite books of all time, Soconomics, uh, to coincide with the World Cup. What changes have you seen in the business of football over your journalistic career? Well, when I began writing about football, I was actually a teenager in the 80s, and it was a tiny, tiny industry. So, you know, at some point in the 80s, I think ITV paid about £8 million for the rights to the then first division. 
and they were very happy with that amount of money. And so it's gone from absolute nothingness. So you could play in the first division with a kind of business the size pretty much of a corner shop into, you know, not big business, but sort of fairly respectable mid-sized business. So, you know, Manchester United, you know, might be among the 500 biggest companies in the UK. And there's been enormous magnification in um, television income and therefore in footballer salaries. That, that has changed spectacularly. And the economics of a World Cup, again, during that kind of, during your professional lifetime, completely changed to now being a, a major event and a major international event in its own right. Yeah, I think the World Cup until about 1990 was a kind of European Latin American duopoly. So in 1990, I think you have three teams from the British Isles and two teams from the whole of Asia, which is, you know, most of the world's population lives in Asia. And it's still, you know, pretty much European, Latin American heavy, but very much the other continents have come in, their teams play, their teams lose because the Europeans especially and the Latin Americans are just dominant. It's amazing to me that the other continents haven't caught up. And as an economy, television rights from the US in particular, but from countries around the world are becoming significant. And what do you think of the significance of it having in Qatar? I mean, you talk there about kind of the link to Asia. Most of the people in the world live in Asia. It's you know not necessarily defined as in Asia in the Middle East, but definitely on the kind of gateway to it. What's the significance of it being in Qatar this year? I think one significance is it's the first time the Arab world is hosting a tournament. And I think for Arabs, this can be a point of pride. I mean... There are many divisions within the Arab world and people identify in many different ways. But I think there was great resentment that historically it's been a tournament of the north of the world and the US has had its uh, chance as well. Until, you know, South Africa and Brazil hosted recently, the South hardly ever got a look in. And so for, for Arabs, this is a kind of recognition that they too are part of the football world. And if you're looking at which Arab countries could host, you know, the ones with the most money to do this and will and sort of tranquility tend to be these tiny Gulf states. And so that's why you end up there. Yeah. Well, there are many reasons why we've ended up in Qatar. Most of them regressible, but that is one reason. Do you think we'll see protests at the World Cup? I don't, because to go to the World Cup, you need a higher card, which the Qatar gives you if you have, essentially if you have match tickets. And I think people going to the games will sort of fly in, fly out, watch the football, not hang around much. So, you know, there might be a couple of kind of guerrilla protests. I wouldn't be at all surprised, for example, about the criminalization of gay rights, gay sex in Qatar. But um, FIFA also has a policy of not allowing TV cameras at the match to film that. So if you're watching on TV, you will not see the protest in the stands. However, people will film, film that now on social media, so it will come out that way. Yeah. How do you think social media is impacting the dynamics of football more broadly in terms of, and in particular, on the economics of it as well? Because so many clubs now seem to almost be becoming media-first companies. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to quantify that they make much money out of social media. You can't really say directly, oh, you know, United, Manchester United, which is 
historically the football club with highest revenues now along with Barcelona and Real Madrid you can't really say oh Manchester United make X amount from social media very largely the income is still tripartite you have TV rights match attendance and then sponsorship merchandise and the significance of social media if it is economically significant is a club can say to sponsors well you know, we have 2 million followers on social media. And so when we put out material that involves your sponsor, that will be seen by those people. And that is powerful. It's hard to say exactly what it's worth. Another significance is that it's allowed players to have their own platform. So they don't need to go through media anymore. They don't even need to go through club media anymore. So even club media struggle to get their own players on the club's TV stations because the players think, well, I'd rather put this out on my own social media accounts. Yeah, and therefore have a legacy for what they want to do afterwards as well, which can be quite um, powerful. Yeah, I mean, some of them are thinking of kind of post-career foundations, the ones who are more into politics or charity. But also, uh, you know, if you're a player and you have a million Twitter followers, then that's a way to monetize. You can say to your personal sponsors, well, I'll put out material on my own account. Who do you think are the players that have gone on to do most interesting things in their career post being a footballer? I mean, I would name uh, Lilian Thuram, who, uh, you know, was France's record international, won the World Cup in 98, a wonderful defender, and has since become a, a very committed anti-racism activist. Uh, Mathieu Flamini, another French player, has started, best described as a kind of tech company, chemicals company, inventing chemicals that can replace plastic. Um, those are two very interesting figures. And what do you see the sort of the future of football and employment in it? Like one of the things that I was really struck in your Barca book was the talk of how the non-playing staff had sort of increased fourfold over the last um, 20 years. And for me, it strikes me as what a lot of young people would love to be involved with football at some degree. And if you can get people involved there in their first job, then it can open a wealth of opportunities for them. But what do you think the future of non-playing jobs in football looks like? Well, clubs want to reach their fans more than just the 90-minute match. So they're producing a lot of social media content. So there's a lot of jobs there, you know, making videos or occasionally interviewing a player for the club website, uh, putting out a video of the fans traveling to the match. There are all sorts of jobs in marketing. Um, there are kind of economic jobs in head office where you try to, um, you know, keep the reins on club spending. The, uh, there are a lot of club psychologists also at youth levels. There's all sorts of youth coaches. There are teachers employed by the youth academies. So, yeah, and the number of specialist coaches as well, the first team. So the first team, it used to be, 35 years ago, the manager and the assistant manager was typically the manager's mate. And now you might have 60 coaches working with the players. You, you know, you have a throw-in coach, you have uh, defensive coaches, you have uh, various fitness coaches and so on. And so often the players have very little contact with the manager. So the media talks about the manager because the manager does the press conferences and so that's when the media sees the club and the manager speaks for the club. But if you're a player, maybe the most important person you deal with is, let's say, the defensive coach. Do you think that the English in particular get a bit hung up on some of the more 
classic roles that you talk about there, the manager and the captain being another one that's often cited by foreign coaches is just being this enormous prestigious thing in, in English football compared to other uh, parts of the world. Yeah, I would agree with that. So in England, the tradition of the omnipotent manager is is stronger than elsewhere. And it goes back to uh, men, because they're all men, which is another of the ridiculous uh, superstitions of football that only a man can manage the team. Uh, men like Alex Ferguson or Jock Steen or Don Revy, who were omnipotent and ran the whole club and did the transfers as well. And on the continent, often that person was called a coach. And then you'd have a technical director who was more involved in the signings and the player salaries. In England, that it was a single job. It was the manager's job. So, yeah, uh, you, you see that now that, you know, some sometimes stupid fans or stupid self-interested managers say, oh, you've got to trust the manager. You've got to give the manager all the power to, for example, decide who the club signs, which is ridiculous because the ten- tenure of a manager is now about a year. So you're going to let somebody who's there typically for a year sign players on four-year contracts, and then the successor comes in and says, well, I don't want these players, I'm going to buy new players. Enormous waste of money. So yeah, the omnipotent manager is a particularly English specimen. And then I think the kind of mystique around the captain in England, it's partly because the model, the kind of emotional model for English football was the military. It's the other kind of working class, masculine profession with historically high status in England. And, you know, for decades... Uh, until military service ended in about 1960, a lot of people, most of the people had been through the military and the military was idolized because of the two world wars. And so the idea of the captain was that he was like a captain in the trenches or like a captain in the boys weeklies version of the trenches that he would lead the men and he would motivate the men and he would uh, be a real man who would, you know, make sure nobody was slacking and this kind of stuff. And, yeah, I mean, it's not really how team dynamics typically work. Uh, in a team, you have, you know, 16 or 20 people, often very conflictual relationships. Uh, like in a school class, you have all sorts of different roles which change with time. So it's not the case that there is a captain and then the men. It's not a, a rigid hierarchy like the military used to be. In which league or in which country do you think we might see the first female manager of a team well that's easy to answer because it's happened in france so uh clermont in the second division had a um a female manager for some years and she did well and sort of overperformed relative to the budget and then she was recruited uh, by the french women's team to uh, become the french women's manager which has become an increasingly prestigious role i mean i think more and more this is going to happen i think that Clubs are missing an enormous opportunity. I mean, in economics, we say the manager is not actually that important. You know, the manager doesn't really determine results in the way that people fantasize about, typically. I mean, a very good manager like Guardiola or Klopp adds some value, definitely. But the managers are less important than people think. But if you think the manager is at all important, clearly the manager is somewhat important, well, you want to get the best manager. But if you're, let's say, uh, Tranmere or Norwich, you can't get the best manager because the best manager will go to Manchester City or someone. And so if you're Tranmere or Norwich, you're going for the 40th best manager or notionally best manager if you're looking at men. If you want to get a female manager, you can get the best female manager pretty much in the world because you will pay more than she could earn in any other job because of this ridiculous and illegal discrimination against women. 
So if I were running a small club, I'd say, well, okay, we're looking for a manager. We've seen a parade of unimpressive blokes who are available because they've been sacked by other clubs. Either I'll go for a man who is outside that category of the managers who cycle through various clubs, or I'll go for a woman, get a, a, a successful, tried, experienced woman who has done well in women's football, and I'll make her manager. And if anyone can't live with that, well, tough. Really, uh, really interesting. Also, one of your historical observations that you were making there, and it's the one thing that really stuck with me from the uh, Soconomics book when I first read it 10 years ago, was that actually capital cities are not that successful at winning European Cups. Um, and it was one of the questions I had was, when do you think Paris will first win the Champions League? Because obviously they've put a huge amount of money into it. Well, what we say in Soconomics is that for a very, very long time, the Champions League went to provincial cities plus Madrid. And so cities like Manchester, Liverpool, Munich, Barcelona, Mil- uh, Milan, and then Madrid is the exception. Now, why? It's because in fascist or communist countries, and Spain was, of course, a fascist country when Madrid became the dominant club, the resources go to the capital city because the capital is where the dictator lives, the dictator manages a lot of the economy of the country and the dictator wants to keep people in the capital happy because that's where you don't want protests and that's where your um, army and your secret police and your administration live so in communist and fascist countries the capital club does tend to be successful so real madrid's the anomaly and they remain very successful after spain became a democracy although after spain became a democracy barcelona also became successful otherwise capitals like london and paris which are the you know biggest richest cities in western europe have not been dominant now that started to change this century as capitals just ran away economically from everyone else and london and paris became much richer than all the provincial cities and so you're starting to see london teams pop up in champions league finals chelsea won one uh, arsenal and spurs have been in finals chelsea won two actually and when will paris when it could be any year. I mean, look, there's an enormous randomness in the Champions League. You can't say, well, uh, we have the best team, therefore we'll win the Champions League. No, the best team typically wins the league because over 38 matches, largely, not totally, evens out. So if you look at the league table, it's a good reflection of strength. Champions League, huge randomness, you know, in the semi-final, you know, it could just as well have been Manchester City in the final if they hadn't collapsed in the last four minutes against Real Madrid. Um, a game, a Champions League can be decided in a couple of minutes. But there is something about, there is a randomness to the Champions League, of course, but also there is a consistency that it do, it takes a long time to build up. You don't tend to get sort of the fluke results a la Greece in 2004 in the European Championships and so on. It's um, Look at Manchester City being a classic example. It's taken them almost a decade to get to the point where they can they can win it. It does take quite a lot of structure building to get there. I would say it takes a lot of quality, more than in a European Championship. So in the European Championship, you've had teams like Greece and Denmark win with teams that if you'd entered them in the Champions League, they would not have done very well. And the Champions League is a much higher level, say from the knockout rounds, the last 16, much better than the World Cup. So at the World Cup, we're going to see teams that, you know, would be fighting relegation in the Premier League at best. I saw Tunisia couple of weeks, uh, about a month ago against Brazil, really a poor team. And there's a lot of teams of that quality. So the Champions League is the best football. And yeah, so to win it, it takes it takes a lot. And 
uh, you have to beat teams like Real Madrid and Manchester City and they don't make many mistakes. And if they do make a mistake, then they still have the return match, which, you know, of course, Greece, there wasn't a return match. Yeah, very true. One of the things that most people that don't follow football get slightly alienated by it is the sort of transfer values of players. And in the last uh, day or so, Haaland's agent at Manchester City has come out and said that they believe he may well be the first billion pound player. What was your take when you heard that? People in football use billion to mean lots of money. They don't actually have any sense of what it means. Billion literally, as you know, means a thousand million. But I remember when Manchester United and New York Yankees 20 years ago agreed a kind of we're going to advise each other on marketing in each of our own continents. The Sun ran a headline saying tie-up could be worth a billion pounds. Now, what that means is it could be worth a lot of money, which it wasn't. And so I think that's what Haaland means. Haaland's agent means. That's interesting. So do you, yeah, because there's so many different ways that you can cut the value of a of a player in terms of not just transfer fee, but also contract and now merchandising and marketing on top of that as well. Yeah. And, you know, does the player have a role in his own merchandising? Um, is he out of contract? I mean, what expedited Haaland's transfer to Manchester City was the death of his agent, Mino Riola. Because Riola had been looking for, I think, tens of millions of euros as a personal fee. And when he died in April, almost immediately, City agreed the deal with Dortmund. Because suddenly there wasn't a guy in the middle trying to get an extra 30 million or so. It was just a matter of paying Dortmund. And the two clubs could quickly agree. And one of the things I wanted to ask about that fascinates me is how does the branding of a player impact the transfer fee. So one of the classics of this, we've got a World Cup coming up. There'll be players that have particularly good tournaments over five or six games, and then their value can often shoot up. So I just wondered, how does player branding impact on the transfer fee? I think very little. Uh, it shouldn't. I mean, you're making a big mistake if you buy a player based on a World Cup. I mean, clubs used to when they didn't really have scouting apparatuses. But now they have scouts everywhere. They have data analysts reviewing the decisions. So you really shouldn't be buying a guy who's playing for a mid-level club and is, let's say, 26. So you have a long record of his career. He's been a mid-level player. But in six games at the World Cup, he did really well. That's not a good indicator. You want to watch the guy over hundreds of matches. So clubs are less stupid than before. The football industry has got progressively a bit less stupid from a base of very high stupidity and so they don't really make these transfers anymore and very largely clubs are looking to get players who are just very good and they're not so swayed by oh we're going to use him in marketing or advertising and that's why you don't really get let's say players with a huge home market like americans or japanese or chinese being signed by clubs that they're not good enough to play for i mean that would be a marketing opportunity right you got a handsome american player uh, or, or uh, the best Chinese player and you were able to sell into their home market. But clubs don't do that because that player wouldn't last a training session in the eyes of his teammates. He just wouldn't be good enough. Who do you think's had one of the best transfer policies of the last decade or so? Who's done particularly well? Brentford. I mean, it's less spectacular because they'll never have the money to buy 
the best players, but for a club that had almost never been even in the second division to become a Premier League team and currently quite a stable Premier League team, that's all just very, very good use of data, both in recruiting players, recruiting players who are undervalued by others, and also in um, tactics, particularly dead ball tactics. Uh, the other two teams uh, are, are Brighton and Michelunt, which is a kind of sister club of Brentford owned by the same guy, Matthew Benham, in Denmark. So we discussed these three clubs in, in Soconomics as clubs that just have made the best use of data, including in transfers. And what do you think the kind of next frontier post-data is? Because the Moneyball side of things has become much more integrated as football has become more professionalised on the economics and business side of it, not just on the playing side. What do you see as the next frontier of where football clubs can gain an edge? I mean, I've just reviewed Rory Smith's quite good book, Expected Goals on Data and the Data Revolution. And my conclusion is the data revolution has been somewhat disappointing in football. It hasn't revolutionized football. I mean, all the serious clubs use data now, and it helps a little bit, but it doesn't help very much in making the right decisions most of the time about transfers. So Brentford, Brighton, Michelin are exceptions, and Rory Smith also highlights them. Mostly... You know, when I wrote my book about Barcelona, it struck me that data was not at all important in their operation. If you look at how Guardiola works, Guardiola watches a lot of video. He doesn't really care that much about stats. So I think that the impact of Moneyball in football has been fairly marginal. And I don't I don't see it revolutionizing in the years to come either. So do you think it's going to be better use of data is going to be an edge in the future? I mean, the one thing you want to know on the field that we still are very bad at is um, tracking, which is coming up, which is what is the player doing when he doesn't have the ball? So where is he on the field and what difference is he making in those positions? Because the player has the ball typically for one minute a match. So for the other 89 minutes, he's making decisions about positioning. And clearly those decisions must be important, but it's very, very hard to evaluate them. So as we get better at understanding what the player is doing in those 89 minutes, we'll become better at valuing players. Yeah, I was struck in the Barca book on the chapters on uh, Lionel Messi about how much actually his movement was the real value sort of off the ball and where that was how he was able, uh, you know, almost look disinterested at points in, in the games and so on. It was a, uh, a fascinating insight that I hadn't really expected before I read the book. Yeah, Messi... I mean, he's unusual in that he's been exempted from defensive work. Almost no other footballer today is. So he spends 89 minutes walking and looking and building a mental map in his head of where everyone is. And so when he gets the ball, he activates that map and he knows that's where the space is. You're going to come through there. Then it's going to come back into the middle and their centre-back is going to be five metres away in the wrong position. So he has worked it out. And he does it by scanning. And, you know, this is becoming a cliche now, but scanning is what the best players do more than the average players. Scanning is you're looking around all the time. So there's a great video of Frank Lampard and Chesk Fabregas scanning all the time, like multiple times a minute. And Messi essentially spends the match scanning. It's really interesting. I've obviously got to ask you, where do you stand on the greatest of all time debate, Messi or Ronaldo? I mean, data analysts and statisticians uh, say, look, they're both the best forwards of their era, but Messi is also the best playmaker of his era. 
So there, Messi is two brilliant players in one, whereas Ronaldo is only one brilliant player in one. But I mean, I think the real question is, we've never had before, except maybe Alfredo Di Stefano, a player who for 15 years, week in, week out, played at the highest level brilliantly. You know, Pelé didn't do that. Pelé played a lot of exhibition matches, pointless exhibition matches with Santos flying around the world. Maradona, Napoli was certainly not an every week guy. So I think that what changed in this era, the televised era, is the best players got a lot more protection from referees. So Pelé was kicked, Maradona was kicked, Messi and Ronaldo hardly. You're not allowed to kick anymore, really. And also, of course, the nutrition has improved, the healthcare has improved. And so you, for the first time ever, really, in football, we've taken brilliant players and said, we're going to protect you. And we're going to make sure that you're going to be brilliant as long as possible, because that's what television requires. And one of the things you talk about in the book is the kind of compensation phenomenon for footballers. And obviously it's become, you know, players have been extraordinarily well paid. Well, one of the favourite things that I read in Sir Alex Ferguson's book with the venture capitalist Michael Moritz was actually Ferguson making the argument that players were underpaid compared to film stars and so on, which I always think is a brave argument that not many have played. But could you talk us through the compensation phenomenon and how it impacts players? Well, I mean, look, there's a moral gauge of pay, which is, you know, what are you worth to society? And of course, most of us would say a nurse is worth more than a footballer. I'm not sure that that's true in the case of Messi, say. I think Messi and a few players give people so much joy Nobody else could do that. So I'm I'm fine with Messi earning lots of money. But so morally, a nurse should probably earn more than a footballer. But the way it works in markets, and markets, of course, are not moral entities, is that you're paid according to the value, the monetary value of your talent. And in football, the results are decided by quality of players. The teams with the best players win, the teams with the worst players lose. That's pretty much how it works. We show that in economics. Salaries predict league positions. So Manchester City win because De Bruyne and Haaland and so on are very good players. And so why are De Bruyne and Haaland at City? Because City pays them the most. So in the end, um, the best players earn the most money. And there isn't really anything else that significantly determines results. And people really want to win football matches, not not because... The owner gets rich if the club wins football matches, but because there's a lot of vanity and ambition and love and in, in football. So people are willing to pay these footballers that amount of money. Now, what does it do to footballers? I think that it separates and alienates them very often from their friends and family they grew up with. It makes it very hard for them to keep those relationships. It makes them very suspicious of people they meet because a lot of people they meet are gold diggers. Uh, trying to get their money or benefit from their fame. And they can't go out onto the streets in the smartphone era because there's just people photographing them or they're in a restaurant with their girlfriend and there's somebody recording the conversation and putting it on social media, this kind of stuff. I mean, really, people behave terribly often with footballers. And so what does a footballer do? Often he ends up staying in his mansion, playing video games or you know, sitting on social media, not going out. Because like, if Mbappe goes out, walks down the street, goes to a cafe. Within 20 minutes, everyone on social media will know he's in that cafe and there'll be thousands of people standing outside the cafe. It's just insane. So they become prisoners of their fame. And that happens 
so quickly to them as well, right? Like this is not a sort of gradual um, period that it happens to. It happens to them possibly even in their teenage years. I was struck in the Wayne Rooney documentary, just like him being put in front of a press conference at Manchester United age 17. And it just, it looking ridiculous slightly in, in hindsight because yeah, he was clearly not well equipped, at, nor would almost any 17-year-old be well equipped enough to face the world's media at that age and answer questions. Well, I mean, Rooney was unusual and they came through very fast. I mean, most people are not, most footballers are not asked to give a press conference at 17. But yeah, I mean, from say 12, 13, when they're doing well in the academy, everyone's saying, oh, he's going to be a star, he's a star of the academy. Usually, of course, they don't then become a star. But the ones who do, typically from 12, 13, they have been uh, hothouse, people obsess about them, people try to get near them, agents approach them on Instagram, you know, 13-year-old with an Instagram account, and then you get agents saying, hey, we'd love to meet. And uh, everyone wants a piece of them. The family often thinks this kid is our hope for future wealth. And so um, they say to the kid, you, you don't worry about anything else. You just play football and we'll take care of the business and everything. And so enormous amount, the kid becomes the center of the family, the kind of breadwinner and the hopeful future breadwinner. And so family relations get inverted. The other siblings often don't get any attention, become secondary. And so it's a very difficult life. And then you're 17 and you earn in a week what your father maybe earned in a decade. Imagine what that does to family relationships. I mean, look, there's a lot of good things about being a footballer, but writing the Barcelona book in particular, I, I really came to feel quite sorry for them. I think their lives are very, very complicated. And this came out with Paul Pogba. I mean, I'm sure you've heard of the legal case now where friends from his childhood threatened him with guns. His brother was close to those friends. And they were saying, you owe us a million euros a year because we were your bodyguards and protected you. And so this is now being handled by the French police. But it's not the only case of its kind. I mean, the others don't typically come out. But a lot of these people have very demanding entourages, friends from childhood. It's fascinating. Yeah, I thought the, the point that you make in the book about footballer not being a good job was uh, was very interesting indeed. What do you make of the new ownership structure at Chelsea and you know the Americanization of what Todd has been talking there about kind of six year style US contracts and so on? I'd just be intrigued as to what you make of what's going on at Chelsea. First, I haven't followed it closely. I'd say a couple of things. One is American Business people have got very excited about soccer because it's the one sport with global potential because in their circles as well, people are sort of falling in love with soccer and they think, oh, these Europeans, they don't know how to run things. We're going to run it properly and importing American ideas of which the Super League was the most famous one, kind of closed league like the NFL. And it doesn't work because there are different constraints here and there's a different sports culture. So, I mean, I don't think that they're going to discover all sorts of brilliant ways of running clubs that Europeans didn't know. But I think six-year contracts is just a very risky idea because it's very rare for a player to be top class for six years. And global football, top-level football is so competitive that a really, really good player, someone we would all think is top 50 in the world, two years' time he might be top 200 or he might be injured. And then he's got a six-year contract. If I were a club owner, long contracts are extremely risky because you know, you give a player a good long contract, great if he does well. If he does badly, you will never get rid of him. You know, no other club will buy him. You see that at Barcelona with players like Piquet and Umtiti 
they have long contracts. They're no longer as good as they used to be. MTC will never be a good player again because he's badly injured. So you say to the player, well, you're not really worth 10 million euros a year, whatever it is. And the player says, well, you gave me a contract and you signed it. And the club says, well, we'd like you to leave. And the player says, well, nobody else is going to pay me anything like this kind of money. And so um, that, I think, is a big risk for the Todd Burley strategy. Yeah, very interesting indeed. Who do you think will win the World Cup this year? I have made predictions before, almost always wrong. It's a mugs game. <laughs> what I'd say is that Western Europeans have won the last four World Cups just because they played the fastest, most organized, best collective football. Western Europe has been totally dominant. But I think Brazil and Argentina have learned. And I saw Brazil uh, play just a very aggressive, well-organized pressing game. Never seen Brazil press properly before. I think they've realized, look, we, we fell behind the Western Europeans. We have to copy them and learn from them. Argentina have done something similar, but with less good players other than Messi. So, But I think this will be a more competitive World Cup in terms of Argentina and Brazil maybe being able to manage the best Europeans. Because there's no hugely dominant Western European team right now. Italy, Italy, maybe the best team, didn't qualify. Maybe the best European team. England are not what they were a year ago. And France have also had a lot of problems and injuries. Yeah. I mean, look, it's the great hope for the English this time. You know, semi-final and a final defeat in the last four years. You know, can England go on and win it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I you know, I saw most of the Euro at Wembley. And England are a very respectable side. And okay, they've done quite poorly in the last six months, but I'm not sure how significant that is. I think what England's strengths are, it's a highly organised, quite boring team. They keep a lot of men behind the ball. They Southgate insists that they pass. So what, when they go up, Southgate says no more of this. We're winning 1-0, so we're going to go into our own penalty area and just boot every ball long and think that we're defending just giving it back to the other team, which they did, for example, against Croatia in 2018. They went 1-0 up and they panicked, played this kind of backs-to-the-wall football. Croatia had the ball the whole game and, of course, won. Very like England, Brazil and Shizuoka 20 years ago. And Southgate says, no, uh, we're a good team and when we go up, we're going to keep passing. And this is not the way the English players kind of grew up from the age of six. But, you know, they're a much more European, continental generation, if you like, than England's ever had. And they've learned it so someone like john stones knows this is the way to play and so i think they will do that and their advantage is they need very few chances they don't create many chances not a very creative team but you have sterling he creates space by dribbling past people harry kane is a very reliable goal scorer and above all they're the best team in the air so you know when england get a corner or a free kick opponents are terrified because you have three or four England players who are typically better in the air than any of the opponents. And so that way they did it at the Euro, you grind it out, you give very little away, and you expect that from a dead ball or from Harry Kane or from Sterling, you'll nick one or two. I think that's a reasonable bet. I mean, of course, I'm not saying England will win. I'm not saying anyone will win because predictions are always wrong. But yeah, I mean, if they win, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's really interesting and a, and a kind of hopeful way to uh, to finish the uh, the conversation. Um, is there anyone else that we should be watching out for in terms of players at the World Cup? Do you think? I mean, this is not a secret, but Pedro of Spain is is the most fantastic player, and uh, I think he's twenty now, and he is 
the most exciting midfielder who can do everything. He can pass, he can run into space, he can score. So he can give the pass, but he can also run onto the pass. It's a very unusual combination. And so of of younger players, he would be my um, tip to just blow us all away. Brilliant. Simon, thanks so much for coming on Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. It's been great to have you on, hear all about your job, A, eh? and also the jobs in and around football and, and, and soccer. Uh, it's uh, It's been a real pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much, Jimmy. Thanks for listening to Jimmy's Jobs. One of the ways we make this show possible is through our various partnerships. If you'd like to partner with us, you'd be joining one of the UK's fastest growing business podcasts, reaching over 40,000 listeners every month. We've helped a wide variety of groups tell their story, from the National Farmers Union right through to the FinTech Alliance. So if you'd like to work with us, just go to www.jobsofthefuture.co. To keep up to date with all Jobs of the Future news, you can follow us across all social media, including our brand new TikTok and YouTube channels.